Now last week, last week, on the ride home, Aaron said, I think you got too much in the we- into the weeds on this one. She said, don't get into the weeds as far. So just for her, we're going to preach the same thing again. We are looking once again at... you. I was surprised that I got through one sermon on verse 37a of Acts 10. Uh, but we're going to do it a second time because there is more there to see. Believe it or not. Last week in our study in Acts, we looked at uh, just eight words... Acts 37a, uh, Peter was addressing the assembled Gentile soldiers, friends, and relatives of Cornelius, a God-fearing Roman centurion. Uh, This assembly was gathered in Cornelius' home in response to a vision that Cornelius was given by God. And because of that vision, the centurion had sent for Peter who was a day's travel from Caesarea in the town of Joppa. As Peter starts speaking to the people, he points out, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. And by this he meant that there was a very public record of the Christian movement from John the Baptism uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and beyond Uh, And we know that it's beyond because he's sent for Peter to come and talk to him. Today we are, you know, surprised, looking at those same eight words again from another angle. You all know what happened. This is the big truth of Christianity. There are no secrets. Okay? And I'm going to say that again. There are no secrets. What is proclaimed from this pulpit is proclaimed from every pulpit. There is no secret knowledge. There is no hidden truth. There is no anything more than the apostles and faithful preachers down through the ages have proclaimed. J. Vernon McGee, who I did enjoy... Uh, in his radio ministry through the Bible, would say that when he taught, he kept it simple. Okay, He says he put his teaching on the bottom shelf where the kiddies can reach it. Okay, Meaning that you know, all the theology in the world is useless if you can't comprehend what it means. And that's the secret of Christianity. It is simple. It's really simple, and we're going to see how simple it is today. There's not that much to know. My favorite example is the thief on the cross. He didn't have much Bible learning. In fact, he had no Bible learning. The only thing he did, as the Bible says to do, is he called on the name of the Lord to be saved. On the cross, he said, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And that's all it took to be saved. Now, that's not all to be known about Christianity, but that's all that it took to be saved. But my point is that Christianity is not the Masonic Lodge. There is no secret handshake 
We don't die. There was, you know, uh, in, in dangerous times of yore, when people traveled by foot, yes, there was the sign of the fish that people would make to, to let each other know that they were a Christian, but it was not because it was some kind of secret knowledge or secret handshake. It was to let people know that you were one of them so that you wouldn't be killed saying, hey, are you a Christian too? Christians don't threaten anyone over disclosing what goes on in the church. Okay? There are no confidentiality agreements. When you come to church, what is preached, you are free to share. In fact, encouraged to share with everyone you meet without holding back one iota. There is no secret. Christians don't have anything such as temple underwear to be only worn. And I'm really only making fun of this because, and I really don't know what it is, okay? I'm, I've just heard things. We don't have secrets. There is not something that those who are sealed under the temple know that others don't know. We all are given to the same thing. As a matter of fact, we have a book called the New Testament. And I looked up, okay? If anybody wants to know everything there is to know about Christianity, the, the Gideons handed out to you in a... In, well, it used to be in every hotel room in the United States. I don't think it is anymore uh, because I do quite a bit of traveling now and I don't see them anymore, which is a shame. But... The New Testament, how long does it take to read? Okay? It's there for anybody. It's on the internet. It can be found in any number of places. According to uh, a knowledgeable Christian website, and I didn't write this down because it didn't matter, it takes about 14 and a half hours to read the New Testament. Okay? So, okay, that's not a comfortable day's read. It's probably not even a comfortable two days read. But how many people in this world spend six days, uh, six hours a day in front of a television set? Okay? How many spend three? How many spend two? If you spend two and instead read the Bible, you'd be through it in a week. If you don't watch television, how much reading does one do? There is no secret to Christianity. No one had to restore the truth. This was unnecessary. That's what the Millerites said they were doing. They were restoring the lost truth of the gospel uh, and Christian science and Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. They all claim to be restoring the truth. There is no secret knowledge in Christianity. So, if that's so, why do people pretend that there is? Why do people want you to think that there is some secret? At this stage of my life, elementary school was, well, more than half a century ago. Boy, doesn't that sound good? Well, well, more than half a century ago. Uh, But, you know, I could easily recall all the schoolyard chants, sayings, taunts, all those kind of things. One of them, you know, I know something you don't know, right? I can even... I know something you don't know, right? No? I don't think they do that anymore, but they did it in my day. I know something you don't know. People, 
There seems to be something in the makeup of a human being that makes them want to know secrets, to know something that someone else doesn't know, as if that special knowledge translates into an importance, some special superiority, because you know something that other people don't know. A striving after so-called special knowledge has plagued Christianity since the very beginning of the church, since the very first year of the church. For the next 120 years, the early church fathers were fighting this heresy that was known as Gnosticism. Gnostic is Greek for knowledge. That's simply what it means. But it means, in the context of Gnosticism, it means that you have some special knowledge sent by God that lets you understand more than anyone else does. This was known in Greek philosophy before it came into Christianity. It was found in the uh, uh, dualistic idealism of Plato. So if you want to look that up, we're not going into that because then I'd be deep into the weeds. And we're not going there today. This thinking is that the world of ideas and intellect was good, beautiful, and true. And the physical world was bad. Okay? And this leads to many bad ways of thinking. The God of the Old Testament, therefore, in the, in the thinking of the Gnostics in the early church, was inferior or bad because he dealt physically, personally, with the Jews. Okay? Whereas the God of the New Testament, you know, Jesus is there, but let's not get the Gnostics into that. The God of the New Testament was more spirit and wasn't dealing physically with the people. The Gnostics also therefore rejected Jesus as a physical person. They're the ones who said that there, he was a, a spirit. He was only partially, partially man. He was not physically man. This heresy was vigorously opposed by a veritable, and venerable, by the way, I'm messing up my words, who's who of early church fathers. And their writings exist, fighting this heresy to this day. We're we're talking about Hippolytus and Arrhenius. We actually quote these people today. Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Tertullian, all of these people were writing against Gnosticism. Cyprian, Julius Africanus, all these men, and for hundreds of pages, there was a literary work called The Shepherd of the Hermes, an early book of visions given to uh, an ex-slave against Gnosticism. Theophilus of Antioch, okay, and we know him, okay, because the book of the Gospel of Luke and the uh, book of Acts is dedicated to Theophilus of Antioch. They believe it's the same person. And then there's Justin Martyr, who was the very first early father who wrote against Gnosticism. And the man he wrote about, the father of the Gnostic heresy, is our old friend, Simon the Magician, from back in Acts 8. 
Okay? You'll remember that Simon was a magician, sometimes called a sorcerer, in Samaria. And when Saul of Tarsus began ravaging the church in Jerusalem, many Christians fled the city for the countryside and outlying provinces, and uh, Philip the Evangelist went to Samaria. And there he was preaching, and the Holy Spirit brought the gospel to the Samaritans, and many believed. And at that point, Peter and John were sent by the other apostles to check out the reports of revival of the people of Samaria. Now, Peter and John laid hands on the believers, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them, a feat so impressive that Simon the magician, now watch this, uh, and the Bible uh, says he was a believer also, but Simon the magician offered money to purchase the power that was demonstrated through the apostles. Okay, It was a commodity to be purchased. It was a knowledge to Simon that had not been given to anybody else that he thought could be turned to profit. Very memorably, the Apostle Peter said, you and your money can go to hell. Okay, That basically is what is said. This then was the man whose teachings of secret knowledge or Gnosticism, Justin Martyr was writing against. Of note in the account in Acts is Simon the Magician's belief that John and Peter had that special power that they did not have that could be purchased and used. Now, Peter and John had some special power. This is not, that's not the heresy of Simon the Magician. Peter and John very definitely had a special power. But was it secret knowledge? Acts 8, 20 through 23, which we've covered before, but it has Peter explain where their power came from. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God. And there it is, the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. There is no secret knowledge in Christianity. There is only the power of God through the Holy Spirit. Peter proclaims this boldly. This power is the gift of God. Everywhere in the Bible, when they do some healings or other miracles, the apostles give the credit where it was due. To the name of Jesus Christ, through whom they per, uh, performed the healings or miracles. And through the power of the Holy Spirit. What Peter did not say to Simon Magus was, nice trick, wasn't it? Okay. He did not say that. Nor did he say, yeah, I know, uh, I know something you don't know, you know. Instead, he said, repent of this wickedness of yours. Belief in secret knowledge, in Gnosticism, is in the uh, Apostle Peter's words, wickedness that must be repented of. So pernicious were the false teachings of the Gnostics that the whole idea of orthodoxy and heresy, okay, was invented 
because of the Gnostics' teachings. Before then, orthodoxy and heresy were unknown concepts in, in anything. It was invented by the early church fathers. And when I say invented, it's not invented so much as defined. Um, orthodoxy in Greek. Now, if you go to look these things up, Weren't you taught in school that you don't define something by the term with which you're looking? Orthodoxy, according to all all these sources, is an orthodox belief in something. No, that's not what I want to know. And I don't want to know if heresy is a heretical belief in something. Okay? That's not what I'm looking for here. So, anyway. Orthodoxy is from the Greek. And it literally means... A correct opinion. Okay. Orthodoxy is a correct opinion. Or, another translation is correct belief. So, uh, belief, opinion, we'll put it there. Heresy, on the other hand, just as hard to find the definition, and I want you to think about this. Heresy means a school of thought. Okay? nothing to do with being right it's a school of thought it can also mean a a thing chosen or of man's choice okay in essence a heresy is what man chooses to believe in opposition to the correct belief Okay, that's what a heresy is. What man chooses to believe by the Greek words as opposed to um, a correct belief. Does that not sum up today's world? A man is now a woman if a man wants to be a woman because he says he's a woman and that is A school of thought. Okay? You can't call that anything but a school of thought. And, oh, by the way, though heresy is mainly used of religious item uh, things, I will say right here and now that that's a heresy by the Greek translation because it it is a choice of man in a way to believe as opposed to a correct thought. People believe that because they want to believe it. So, so widespread was false teaching in the early church that the Apostle Paul had to deal often with them in his epistles. And it wasn't necessarily that he was dealing with Gnostics, but he was dealing with ideas that came to be embraced by Gnostics later on in the uh, uh, second century. Paul says in uh, 1 Timothy, and most of the, an awful lot of these are from his letters in Timothy, uh, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. 
the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what uh, about or what they so confidently affirm. Meaningless talk. Again from 1 Timothy. Some have rejected these, which was faith and good conscience, and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among there are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Once again, how nice to be named in the Bible, but not in this case. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So pervasive were false teachers by the second century that the idea of listen to this, okay, we've just defined we just defined heresy and orthodoxy. Well, something else that got done because of this false teaching was the idea of ecclesiastical hierarchies was instituted. Okay? In the beginning, we had the apostles. And then the apostles, we don't really hear about them much, but they had disciples. Paul had Timothy. What was Timothy if not a disciple? Paul calls him a son in the faith. But what is that but a disciple? The apostles had other disciples. And those disciples, by the end of the first century, 90, 100 AD, were getting old, and their disciples were taking over the teaching. But you start getting down to the middle 100s, to the end of the 200s, and you have many layers of teaching between the apostles and what's being taught nowadays. And the church leaders thought if they set up a hierarchy of teaching that they could keep error out of the church. And this is where church hierarchies came from. Not only that, but then they decided that they really needed a head of the church. And this is where papal secession came from, priestly secession. Catholic Church claims it can trace its priests all the way back to Peter. They say that. I don't believe them. The false teaching of Gnosticism resulted in the false teaching of Christianity to combat it. Okay? So it didn't just affect a little thing. It affected all of Christianity for hundreds of years. The idea of Gnosticism and false teaching is still relevant today because it has never gone away entirely. For the last 2,000 years of the Christian church, Gnostic teachings have repeatedly sprung up and they're springing up even more today. One of the most popular books of the last 20 years, and I looked up the dates to get it right, it was published in 2000, was Angels and Demons by Dan Brown, which I have not read. It is 
directly based on the Gnostic Gospel of Philip. Okay? And the, the big thing was talking, the Gospel of Philip talks about Jesus marrying Mary Magdalene. Okay? Apparently, that is what the book Angel and Demons is based on, is the Gospel of Philip. The Gospel of Thomas is part of the basis for liberation theology. The Gospel of Judas presents Judas as the hero of the New Testament, the man Jesus turned to to help him with the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. It is the Gospel of Judas that says that Jesus took Judas aside when he wasn't with the other disciples and gave him special knowledge about salvation and the workings of the things of God. A special knowledge that has come up. These are all concepts, theories, and ideas talked about today in Christian circles. Gnosticism has not only not gone away, it uh, may be as popular as it ever has been. Now, a few weeks ago, Robin and Debbie and Aaron and I, we all went down to the pastor's conference put on by the Southern California Association of uh, Reformed Baptist Churches. And one of the last speakers touched on the subject of heresy spoken from the pulpit. Okay, uh, He was talking about what heresy is and what heresy isn't. It is not heresy, he said, if you speak... A heresy, uh, a heresy by misspeaking, which is a really good thing, folks, because I know that I misspeak all the time. It is not heresy to teach something that is not orthodox. That in and of itself is not heresy. Heresy, he said, is knowingly teaching that which is false and refusing to correct it when you are confronted. Okay? So, if I misspeak, I misspoke. I'm not a heretic, okay? If I even teach something that is false, and and frankly, that happened to me very early uh, in my preaching career, such as it is at Twin Peaks when when I was trying to correct Jehovah's Witnesses and used a modalistic argument, meaning... God has taken on different aspects for different things. That's modalism. If you say that Jesus was the Son at one time, but he was the Father at another, uh, that's modalism. And, And in an argument, I fell into that and corrected myself by the next meeting. Okay? Heresy is knowingly teaching that which is false and refusing to stop. A heretic, in other words, is one who adheres to the school of thought of the school of man's choice. Okay? A heretic is one who teaches man's wisdom and and not God's eternal truth. In Acts chapter 20, Paul speaks to the elders of Ephesus, and he's going to Jerusalem, and we know that He's leaving them, and he knows he's leaving them for the last time. He's going to Jerusalem because he's going to be put on trial, and he doesn't know what's happening after that, but he says, And now behold, I know that none of you 
among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom. So, none of you here that I have proclaimed the kingdom of God to will see my face again. Just to put that into context, you'll never see me again. I am leaving. This is it. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Okay? He has preached the whole counsel of God, not shrunk back from preaching it, and he is innocent. If any start and fall away, he has taught the truth. If any start teaching heresy, he has taught the truth. He is innocent of the blood of any of them. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not seize one, uh, I did not seize night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul leaves Ephesus with a clear conscience, and not only does he leave them with a clear conscience, he made sure they knew what he had taught and what it meant. Others will come, he says, speaking twisted things, fierce wolves destroying the flock. There will be false teachers, among them people teaching Gnostic things. But Paul points out that that he proclaimed the full counsel of God. And at the time he said that, let's think about the full counsel of God. We have now the New Testament. At the time that he was saying this, there were perhaps eight books considered scripture that had been written. And he had written six of them. Okay? So, we have the book of James and uh, I'm forgetting the other one because that wasn't part of the sermon, but he had written six of the books that were now considered scripture out of eight. What did he have? Well, he had the teachings of Jesus Christ to the apostles and to himself. What is the full counsel of God, but what Jesus said. Frankly, I could go back through here and say, the epistles are commentaries. They're application. Okay? There, there is nothing new there. Paul might be telling you what they mean in your life, what they mean to the life of a church, but he's not breaking new ground. They say that by the time that Paul became a Christian, three years after Jesus' death, The major creeds were already written because he quotes them. And you can see in certain Bibles where he's quoting them because he put them in other size type to let you know that they were a doxology or part of a creed. He did not make anything up. The whole counsel of God was what the apostles knew from Jesus and what Paul knew from the apostles and Jesus. Still, with no Bible, he taught the whole counsel of God. God gave, gave this counsel completely verbally from the lips of God himself, Jesus Christ, to his disciples and to Paul. There is nothing more 
than the full counsel of God. There is no secret knowledge. There's no secret handshake. There's no temple underwear. And like I say, I'm not making a joke here. There is nothing added to the Word of God. Fourteen and a half hours. You want to know what Christianity is? Fourteen and a half hours to get through the New Testament in its completeness. Will you understand it in fourteen and a half hours? No. But that's what's there. The apostles, disciples, and believers have proclaimed the full counsel of God to their very deaths. Okay? Any teaching to the contrary just continues Satan's 2,000-year-old lie about Jesus and the church. As Peter said to Cornelius, you know what happened. It's right there. It's been proclaimed. There's nothing new. Take the time. You know what happened. Let's close in prayer. Lord, you've given us your word. You've given us the testimony of the apostle. You've given us the testimony of eyewitnesses. You have given us faithful preachers down through the years. You have given us Miracles, you've given us healings, you've given us everything and more that we need to understand the Christian faith. Those who say that it's a superstition have not read it, they have not looked into it, they have not read your word, they have not listened to the pastors that you've given them. There is no new knowledge. Everything you want us to know about you is found in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Christianity is not a mysterious religion. For 2,000 years, faithful men of God have attempted to put out the simple truth. And the simple truth also means that there is nothing secret about Christianity. Lord, bless us this day and bless this teaching to our minds. In Jesus' name, amen.